You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special and esteemed guest, Dr. Amanda Fader. So Dr. Fader is Vice Chair of Gynecologic Surgical Operations and Director of the Center for Rare Gynecologic Cancers at Johns Hopkins Health System. She is also the President-Elect of SGO. Globally recognized as a leader in the world of ovarian cancer, Dr. Fader is always at the forefront of groundbreaking research and trials in this space. So as you may imagine, we have several things to learn and ask Dr. Fader today. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Fader, focusing on rare ovarian cancers and discussing some other recent hot topics in this field. I hope you have your beverage because I have mine and we can get to connecting over coffee with Dr. Fader. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Fader, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee and honor to have you with us. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me, Runsi. Thank you, um, Dr. Fader. So um, several questions on many topics that we will discuss in the next uh, hour, but just to start us off, um, tell us what is rare ovarian cancer? What, what, what is meant by that? Yes, certainly. So the National Cancer Institute really defines rare cancers as those with an incidence of fewer than 15 per 100,000 people per year. So when you look at that definition, almost all gynecologic malignancies, with the exception of maybe endometrial cancer, are considered rare. But ovarian cancer is particularly rare, and when you look at the um, uncommon subtypes uh, that we are privileged in our field uh, to treat women for, including low-grade serous ovarian carcinoma, mucinous carcinoma, granulosa cell cancers, clear cell cancers, these are exceptionally rare tumors. Um, which, you know, occur in, you know, fewer than 5 to 10% of all ovarian cancers that are diagnosed. Thank you for the definition. So, um, you know, low-grade serious ovarian cancer seems to be topmost in many people's minds, especially, particularly those who have the rare ovarian cancer. So can you please tell us more in detail about uh, low-grade serious? What percentage of ovarian cancers would that be? How does it present? How is it different from, you know, and how much more is it is it prevalent versus other rare ovarian cancers? And do all, yeah. many questions in one, and do all patients know what kind of ovarian cancer they have at their point of diagnosis? Uh, could you please share your guidance on this? Absolutely. Those are great questions. So my very first patient as a G1 oncologist was a young woman with a low-grade serous ovarian cancer. And this is what really drew me to, um, you know, her experience and then the experience of treating several other patients drew me to, to the rare tumor field. And um, what I was really struck by back in 2009 when I first uh, treated this patient was 
just how few specific treatment options we had for women with low-grade serous ovarian carcinoma and other rare cancers. And so when we look at the most common type of ovarian cancer, which is epithelial ovarian cancer, or cancers that can develop from the surface cells of the ovary, the serous carcinomas are the most common type of epithelial cancers we see. So this is sort of the more common generic variety of cancer that we see in women um, with this subtype. But of the serous cancers, um, you know, the majority of them are going to have high-grade serous disease. Only about 20 to 30 percent of women with the serous carcinomas have low-grade serous. And of all epithelial cancer subtypes, women with low-grade serous constitute about 5 to 10 percent of that population. And we know that women who are diagnosed with low-grade compared to high-grade cancers are more likely to be a younger age at diagnosis with a median age in, in their 40s instead of median age in the late 50s, early 60s for women with high-grade cancers. Um, we know that in some series, um, survival outcomes seem to be different. The low-grade serous tumors tend to grow more slowly. We call that an in, indolent growth pattern. And they have something called low mitotic activity in their tumors, again, meaning that their tumors don't, don't uh, proliferate rapidly um, and are more likely to express hormone receptors like estrogen and progesterone compared to women with high-grade serous cancers. The problem with that, though, is that when tumors have a slower growth pattern, um, they're not as likely to respond quite as well to the conventional um, old school or cytotoxic chemotherapy agents that we use to treat the high grade serous ovarian cancers. And so really contemporary efforts uh, by researchers and people who are really passionate about low grade serous carcinoma like me and other researchers like David Gershenson at MD Anderson, Rachel Grishman at Memorial Sloan Kettering and several others, Lauren Cobb at MD Anderson, we're all trying to understand, you know, the differences in women with these tumors. Um, how can we harness those differences in pathology, in the molecular um, makeup of these tumors, the way they express receptors differently? Uh, what targets can we use to treat these patients in a different and, and better way than we have in the past. And so that's what I've sort of devoted a lot of my career to is understanding those differences, harnessing them and um, trying to study, you know, best, you know, best treatment strategies in this population of women. Thank you. And when you speak about differences, uh, you know, in terms of presenting with the disease. Yeah. Is there any difference that you typically see in women who are presenting with low-grade serious versus high-grade serious in terms of, you know, symptoms or anything that, you know, pathology-wise, et cetera, that you could share with us? Yeah, certainly. So there's um, very different um, precursor lesions with women with low-grade serous. We know that the serous borderline tumors or those tumors that aren't quite cancerous, not quite benign, but somewhere in between there, um, are more likely to be associated with women with low-grade serous carcinomas. So sometimes the low-grade serous tumors develop um, in the setting of a serous borderline tumor in women. So that's why we see it in um, you know, younger women. Um, in some cases, we see a greater incidence of early stage disease in that population because they have serous borderline um, tumors but may just have a smaller component of a low-grade serous tumor. 
But there can be very similar symptoms that can occur. Um, abdominal bloating, um, low-grade pelvic pain, um, early satiety, meaning you know feeling full more quickly with less food. Um, because these tumors can become quite big. Um, they can also generate some ascites or fluid around the tumors if they spread to other areas. Um, but they look a little bit different uh, under the microscope, but they actually look a lot different under the microscope in terms of um, their growth patterns and their, uh, the proteins that, that we see that, that um, are different in the two tumors. So again, very high concentration of hormone receptor positivity in the low-grade tumors. We also see KRAS mutations mm -hmm. and very um, low P53 mutations. P53 is a tumor suppressor gene that's one of the most commonly mutated genes in human cancers. But we don't see a lot of significant mutations in P53 low-grade where we see an abundance of that um, in women with high-grade disease. Thank you for that explanation. So basically, to, to summarize it, it seems like even though um, in, from a pathology or a medical perspective, you know, they do look and behave very differently, these two cancers, the low grade and the high grade. But when it comes to symptoms or presentation, they're pretty much similar um, in terms of, you know, if the women were to look out for symptoms, it would be the same symptoms as would be the other kinds of ovarian cancers as well. So thank you for the clarification. So I was reading about um, an interview um, in which you said every five minutes a woman in the United States will be diagnosed with a gynecology cancer and the incidence and the mortality rates of several women's cancers are on the rise. So when I saw that, I was like, you know, this raises a question in my mind, and I'm pretty sure in, in many other people's minds that yeah. there are so many advances in treatment that are already happening. So despite that, why why are the number of cases rising and what should our overcomers know and be aware of in terms of being vigilant um, with their... Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. So we ha actually, if I may mention, we have a campaign right now at the Society of Human Oncology, the SGO, and our foundation, the Foundation for Women's Cancer, called, you know, five take five for for the five gynecologic cancers, um, because every five minutes a woman in the U.S. you know is diagnosed with one of these malignancies. And the the good the good news I will say is that on the ovarian cancer front, we've made tremendous advances in the last three decades. And when you look at a lot of the population based studies we're actually seeing that the overall incidence of ovarian cancer is decreasing over the last three decades, right? And the medium survival is starting to increase, which is fantastic. And the American Cancer Society, the NCI, the CDC have all reported on this in recent years. And, and part of that is because of um, organizations like yours that are helping raise awareness about symptoms when, you know, if you feel something, say something and go to your doctor and get care. It's also because treatments, uh, we're identifying families that are at high risk for these cancers and getting women, you know, education and getting them to their providers for prevention techniques. But also, as you said, you know, treatments for ovarian cancer um, are improving significantly, including the PARP inhibitors and several other uh, classes of drugs that have impacted that. However, for cancers like endometrial or cancer of the womb, uterine cancer, we're seeing an increase in incidence and mortality across multiple countries with that cancer, for example. Sometimes ovarian and uterine cancers can be tied together or linked in different syndromes. 
And that's, it's really important because that's one of the most, um, also one of the most common gynecologic cancers in women. And endometrial and cancer is growing so fast in incidence, it's gonna overtake colon cancer as the third leading cause of incidence uh, in women by 2030. And so that cancer as well as cervical cancer, which is a preventable cancer caused by the human papillomas virus still remains at very high levels across the, the world, even though it's decreasing in the United States. So we have this really great opportunity as you know, a community of people who care about um, preventing gynecologic cancers and eradicating them, and to help women who've been diagnosed with these cancers, to educate women about all of the five gynecologic cancers, and how we can, you know, learn about them, teach the next generation of women, so that we can start preventing more readily. Thank you. So. Um... You talked about the new advances, right? So tell us about the new advances that are happening in rare ovarian cancers and what should our overcomers know about promising treatment options on the horizon, both for the frontline as well as the recurrent rare ovarian cancers? Yeah, certainly. So thank you. That's a great question. And just we are entering a, a very exciting era of research now in rare tumors. Um, the last decade has brought about more innovations in rare ovarian and gynecologic cancer research than ever before. A lot of that was spearheaded. I would just want to give a shout out to Dr. David Gershenson, who helped launch the, the Gynecologic Oncology Group Rare Tumor Committee, which is now the Energy Oncology Committee. And back in 2013, that's sort of when the, you know, a little bit before that, when the movement all started, is we started to appreciate the differences in these cancers and how we could target them. And one of the movements right now that we're looking at is there's a, there's a movement um, examining what is the value of the conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy, like therapies like carboplatin, paclitaxel that are really effective for some cancers and have been around for more than two decades. But we're, we're trying to understand which women with rare tumors are gonna really benefit from those treatments. And do we add additional therapies on top of that carboplatin, paclitaxel backbone that's worked so well for women with the high grade cancers? Or do we look at moving away from those chemotherapies and that novel molecular targeted treatments. Um, and we're seeing that across multiple cancer types in breast cancer, prostate cancer, and now in gynecologic cancers, like, you know, really starting to understand how we can molecularly target these tumors. So for example, in, my, in our field in low-grade serous carcinoma, Dr. David Gershenson and I lead a, um, one of the first randomized control trials for women who are newly diagnosed with low-grade serous carcinoma and have more advanced stage disease, so stage three or uh, stage two through four disease, and we're looking at um, chemotherapy backbone that we talked about, the carbotaxel, with the addition of an anti-estrogen letrozole, because we know these tumors uh, secrete, you know, have a high expression of estrogen receptors, compared with just the letrozole, the aromatase inhibitor or anti-estrogen alone. And we're trying to examine like, do women really need that chemotherapy or which patients will most benefit from that chemotherapy? And a couple of important studies done at MD Anderson and one uh, at my institution um, at Hopkins and at the Cleveland Clinic have really studied this drug letrozole and found some nice activity in women with low-grade serous. 
as we're studying this in the recurrence setting, investigators at all of our centers and as well as Memorial Sloan Kettering and others are studying just using anti-hormonal therapies alone, uh, as well in the recurrent setting. Um, and so there's lots of studies, both in granulosa cell cancers, low-grade serous, and other tumors that just that express these estrogen receptors to look at anti-hormonal therapies um, that might you know, best help treat these, can these patients with these cancers. Um, and you're looking at exciting combinations um, uh, for example, that target that uh, the MAP kinase pathway that we talked about earlier. Um, and so uh, a couple of important studies are looking at the combination of MAP kinase inhibitors, um, as well as um, uh, additional uh, combinatorial strategies. So avudometinib is one of those drugs that's being studied by uh, colleagues around the world. It was formerly known as VS6766. And we're looking at that combined with the drug defactinib. Um, and that has that combination has shown very exciting results in women with recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma. So we, we really feel that plus um, the addition of hormone therapy and um, a class of drugs called CDK4-6 inhibitors that have been studied really closely in breast cancers and have shown improved survival in breast cancer patients compared to the hormonal strategies alone. Um, are also being studied at, at um, MD Anderson and other centers now um, and are really showing some exciting results in women who, for example, are being treated upfront in the neoadjuvant setting before they get that initial surgery, as well as studying them in the recurrent setting. So lots of exciting progress being made in these areas. Thank you for sharing that. And so as you were speaking, I was just thinking the only thing that needs to change in this whole uh, equation is the names of those drugs that we cannot pronounce. But I agree, and we can't pronounce them well either. We often will give them shorter names or acronyms. <laughs> so, uh, wonderful. Um, so in terms of, you know, surgery, let's because you are also a well-renowned, internationally renowned surgeon, just switching gears a little bit. Um, yeah. It seems surgery, it's the primary treatment generally for granulosa cell tumors, right? As we are on the topic of rare ovarian cancer. So drawing on your surgical expertise, can you tell us the, the most effective surgical techniques for this particular type of ovarian cancer and some of the, perhaps some of the promising clinical trials that are on the horizon or, um, you know, yeah. emerging for granulosa cell tumors? And uh, if so, how should our overcomers go about signing up for those clinical trials? Yeah, that, you're asking such wonderful questions. So um, in addition to granulosa cell, I would say any indolent tumor, and so that would include the mucinous, the low-grade serous, all, all of these uh, types of tumors, if a woman is diagnosed with them, surgery is always going to be one of the mainstays of treatment. But you're right that we know a lot about surgery and granulosa cell cancers. And because these tumors are particularly slow growing and indolent, you know, women can have a, a debulking surgery, for example, and go 10 years before, you know, hopefully we always shoot for cure, but if they experience a recurrence, it might be 10, 12 years and then have another surgery, a bit of therapy, and can do very well. We think that surgery is probably the, one of the most important features of treatment for women with these types of tumors because they just don't respond as well to the chemo 
therapy agents. And there's a lot of great people around the country studying granulosa cell cancers. I wanna give a shout out to Tyler Hillman and MD Anderson, who is doing just fantastic translational work in their area. Jubilee Brown, who's one of the internationally recognized experts. Gershenson, um, our center, like the, so many people are, are studying um, and, and, and MSK, and they have a lot of great, forgive me that I'm probably leaving people out, but just thinking of some of the, the centers now that have um, some exciting trials for patients. And again, in this area, there's a lot of work going on in looking at hormonal therapies, um, steroidal antiprogesterone treatments like onapristone, for example, um, and other um, uh, enzalutamide. Um, and so if you go on clinicaltrials.gov, which is the NCI's you know, clinical trials registry database and type in granulosa cell, um, you're going to find a listing of all of the active trials in the United States um, that and they'll give you a listing of where that trial is being um, where it's open and activated and it's often open it with rare tumors we've got to open them ideally at more than one center so that we can offer it to as many patients as possible. Um, and it will tell you where the lead site is how to get in contact with that that site and find out what is the closest center to me that might have this particular trial and even if one doesn't qualify for a particular trial i think clinicaltrials.gov is great because getting in contact with some of these rare tumor centers will um, also put patients in touch with the research teams there that can help them identify well i don't have this trial for you but i might have this or be able to direct patients to to different centers so and I'll build on that as I do every time we have an expert talking about clinical trials is we actually have a clinical trials um, finder on our website now, which is oh, uh, fantastic. Okay. dedicated to ovarian cancer. And so um, so this is a message to to our overcomers that are listening that you can go directly to the Overcome website and search for the ovarian trials only. And it is also nicely, we have also um, a, um, an assistant to help you out uh, with your search. And we also have clinical trial navigators to help help you out if you have any questions on any types of ovarian cancer that you're searching for. It's a really easy and um, friendly tool for you to use. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for educating me about that. I will send my patients to your site as well. Thank you. Thank you. And so um, in terms of recurrence, right, it is always top of mind for all yeah. our comers, be it you know, low grade or high grade serious. So in terms of just statistically speaking, percentage wise, because the two cancers um, behave very differently, what is the percentage of, percentage of recurrence rates for low grade serious ovarian cancers? And what is the emerging or the current role of immunotherapy? We understand that immunotherapy is still not the gold standard for uh, ovarian cancers in general, but when it comes to low grade, how is immunotherapy doing and what are the promises in the horizon? So um, it's similar to other types of cancer. If one is diagnosed with an earlier stage of disease, the recurrence rate is gonna be much lower. Um, so very few women with stage one disease experience a recurrence. Um, fewer, you know, few women with stage two, although some do. And it really depends on a lot of factors with those with advanced stage disease. Um, certainly a goal with a surgery is um, 
maximal cider reduction if possible and what that means is you all probably well know in the audience that you know um, that your surgeon will spend all the time you that is needed to help you remove all of the cancer that is safe to remove um, at your debulking surgeries um, in some cases that means uh, r0 or residual you know zero meaning we think with the naked eye that we've removed all of the cancer we never know for sure so we ha actually have no idea um, because there could be microscopic cells there, but it, we have a pretty good sense from the literature that the more cancer we remove at a debulking surgery, you know, the longer the remission and we can increase chance of cure in some of those cases. But unfortunately, we know that women with advanced stage disease have a much higher rate of recurrence, you know, likely in the 70 to 80% range. And that is something that we are all, those of us who study this disease are really um, inspired to, to change and improve. And um, some of these studies that I've been talking about have shown an improvement in progression-free survival or, you know, uh, increasing remission from months to years, for example, um, in both the high grade and the low grade uh, serous types of tumors and the other types of rare ovarian cancers. So surgery remains a really, really important part of that. You asked a little bit about immunotherapy and we're st the jury is still out on immunotherapy and low grade serous cancer. It's a very sexy new type of drug, but to be honest, the, the, the early trials haven't showed the super promising results we had hoped. And one of the reasons for that is because the um, patients with tumors that respond well to immunotherapy have something called um, impairment in their mismatch repair genes uh, in their DNA. And what that means is if we think about the DNA as our genetic makeup in cells, and in order for a cancer cell or any cell to replicate itself identically, it has to copy its genetic material or DNA exactly as it was in the original cell. And there is, I like to think about it like an assembly line or a factory, you know, it, it, there's so many little steps that occur with unraveling that double helix of DNA, copying it, and then re reassembling it. And like thousands of errors can occur along that assembly line process. And so they, there's these special proteins or enzymes called the mismatch repair genes that if there's a mismatch that occurs when um, that, that replication process is occurring, it takes those um, you know, elements off of the assembly line, fixes them and puts them back on. Or if it can't be fixed, basically the cell is programmed to die. And so when those mismatch repair proteins or genes are awry, then you can imagine that assembly can occur in an in an abnormal way and so abnormal dna with mutations and changes can then get replicated over and over again and that's one of the hallmarks of cancer um, and so low-grade serous cancers don't often have um, those impairments in the mismatch repair genes that make them very sensitive to immunotherapy but that doesn't mean that immunotherapy has no role it's currently being studied in low-grade serous and several other cancers but we think that there's likely to be more promise when you combine them with other drugs mm. additionally there's other mutations that are unique to low-grade serous we talked a lot about the map kinase pathway that's a signaling pathway in the cell that results in proliferation or replication of cells um, and so there's lots of little targets along that pathway, for example, or along the hormonal pathways that we can target differently in the low-grade serous and the granulosa cell tumors and other cancers.
Thank you. Um, one of the things that I was I'm still curious about that when it when it comes to surgical interventions, you said that for the low grade serous, especially for the granulosa cell tumors, right? Um, surgery yeah. does wonders. It is probably the the mainstay of you know treatment for this particular yeah. cancer. Now we have also heard things about you know minimally invasive surgery versus open surgery and radical hysterectomies and all, all those terminologies, right? So um, for this particular type of cancers or, or, or you know, uh, rare ovarian cancers in general, yes. uh, what is your thought or what is your guidance to our overcomers when it comes to the type of surgery that they should be asking their surgeons of, whether it should be a minimally invasive or an open surgery, or is that a debatable option? Well, it can be debatable depending on this stage. And sometimes if there's an early stage tumor, we may not know until after the fact that something is cancerous or low grade, right? And so in some cases, women will undergo minimally invasive surgery from a GM oncologist or an experienced surgeon. And it's, you know, as long as the correct surgery was done and, um, you know, potentially this a staging procedure in order to determine, you know, uh, lymph nodes and other areas are clear of disease or are, are studied, then it, in some cases, minimally invasive surgery is okay. I would say, though, that in my humble experience, when we're dealing with more advanced stage or bulky disease, that the jury is also still out about the value of minimally invasive surgery here. There's certainly reports in the literature about it. And if patients have had uh, that are listening to this have had minimally invasive surgical procedures, you know, they may have been perfect and exactly what they needed. But for most women who have really, really bulky disease, and if we're starting with primary surgery, I personally as a surgeon find that challenging to do with a minimally invasive approach because um, it's just very challenging, especially when one has to do multi-organ resection. If we have cancer involving, for example, the spleen and part of the colon, and we have to remove those organs and put stuff back together again, um, and if you want to really feel and palpate and, uh, and look, you know, under all nooks and crannies in that abdomen, for me, that palpation with the surgical hands is really valuable. And so I will say that for some women that undergo neoadjuvant treatment, either chemotherapy or hormone therapy, and have a great response to that therapy, and then when you go in to surgery, you might not have a lot of disease left, those may be the perfect candidate for minimally invasive surgery. And um, Dr. Rao Hain at MD Anderson, I think, is leading a study called the LANCE trial, which is endeavoring to understand after that therapy, you know, at interval debulking surgery, is open incision or minimally invasive incisions better? So we still don't know the answer to that, but we, we are excited to find out. Thank you. Um, so moving on to a hot topic in ovarian cancer yeah. right now, which is the chemo drug shortage, right? Right. Um, right. It's uh, our overcomers, you know, they have asked us several questions about this. And of course, everyone's anxious uh, because it's treatment and get, that can be disrupted. So um, tell us wh where we are with this uh, drug shortage and what steps or uh, our overcomers should be taking or what questions should they be asking their healthcare team um, in terms of yeah. possible disruptions that may happen in their treatment and how are the physicians like you planning to navigate this shortage and what are some of the treatment alternatives if there is um, scarcity? 
Those are wonderful questions. It's a it's a challenging time, isn't it? And I think sort of post post COVID nineteen pandemic, we're recognizing that there um, are a number of industries that were affected by the pandemic, um, and a number of industries in the healthcare sector that we rely on as physicians and patients to help us give the best possible treatments to our patients. So to put things into perspective, the issue of drug shortages in the United States is a chronic problem. It's existed for more than a decade. Um, and drug shortages can occur, uh, including chemo shortages, for a number of reasons. Um, we could have a shortage in the raw materials used to produce the drugs, the labor or supply chain issues, quality control program problems at the facilities that manufacture the drugs. And this latter point is one of the reasons that we had our current chemotherapy drug shortage that started back in December of 2022, in which um, a number of the most commonly used chemotherapy agents uh, that we use in our field and many others, carboplatin and cisplatin, which is well known to all of us, um, be, went in severe shortage in the United States um, over the last several months. And, um, and the, these platinum drugs, the carbo and the cisplatin, basically constitute the chemotherapy backbone for more than 100 standard of care chemotherapy regimens. So even though they're old school and they've been around for two decades, they still, as you all know, are one of the most important drugs that we use to treat ovarian cancer. Um, so I will tell you that um, things are better now. Um, uh, and um, I was very proud that the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and the Foundation for Women's Cancer, um, we really took a proactive role. We were the first me medical society to address the drug shortages head on. Um, and we took a very proactive approach. So one of the first things we did was we assembled a drug shortages task force and working together and then also with the gynecologic oncology group and our friends at ASCO, we created the initial um, alternative guidelines. So if you're at a center that didn't either had a shortage of these drugs or were an absence of the drugs, we created evidence-based guidelines for what was the next best thing a patient could receive. This was based on clinical trials and best available evidence. We then took this to insurance companies. We took it to the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network that establishes the standards of care for cancer treatment so that these alternatives would be recognized and patients wouldn't be delayed or denied critical therapies. We also went straight to the manufacturers, to the FDA and worked on Capitol Hill very aggressively to address how do we get drug to the places that need them most we and so we um worked with we were invited by the house cancer caucus to come and speak um, about solutions to the problem they invited us to help them draft a bill um, to look at how we can improve the issue of drug shortages our, our president angela secord from duke university was really involved in that and as well as others we worked closely with the fda and the fda um, uh, you know, started outsourcing and bringing drug in. So they got a source of cisplatin and carboplatin from overseas. Mind you, most of the carboplatin and cisplatin is produced overseas anyway, so that's not new. Um, so we rely a lot on foreign raw materials and manufacturing facilities. And so those are other things we're sort of taking a look at. 
Um, and we're, we aren't just wanting to, to, to mitigate the problem at the SGO and, and others, we're, we're wanting to work on long-term solutions with at the FDA and Congress, whether that is to create greater incentives for manufacturing plants um, to produce these drugs, because they're so, these generic injectable drugs are so cheaply produced that companies just don't make a big profit when they, when they, when they manufacture carboplatin and cisplatin. So there isn't this big incentive to produce these drugs. And so creating better tax and pull incentives for these companies, better quality control metrics that the FDA would have the oversight to oversee and currently do not, um, consolidating potentially creating a central supply of this and putting chemo drugs on the essential medicines list. So the FDA, the CDC, they have these this list of critical medicines that we need, you know, for whether it's antibiotics, epinephrine, and if you can believe it, chemo drugs are not on that list. And I would argue these are among the most essential medicines we use to save lives and extend lives for millions and millions of cancer patients. And so just little little things like that, what we can do to change, I think will make a big difference moving forward for patients. Thank you so much for your leadership in this, because it's, uh, you know, as you said, these are drugs that our, our overcomers need for their treatment purposes. And the shortage is, it causes so much anxiety. It's good to know. Oh, it's terrible. You, yes. You have taken so many steps. Good to know that it's looking better. And so yeah. um, the, the only question that I had, you know, so let's say someone is on this regimen, right? The carbo and the cisplatin, and then suddenly there's a shortage and that person is not able to continue her treatment mm -hmm. regimen. So there are safe alternatives, as you're saying, so that the patient can be switched over to something else uh, seamless, That's right. right? Without yes, any- I want to reassure patients that whether it was, not all sites were out of both of those drugs at the same time. So some have a carbo shortage and so we would switch them to cisplatin or vice versa. These are sister drugs that work very similarly. The issue cisplatin's a little more toxic, and that's why we've converted most modern regimens to carboplatin. But cisplatin works great to treat the cancer. So a lot of centers were able to do that. When out of both, we've worked with other foundations and organizations, one of them called Angels for Change, which is led by Laura Bray, just a wonderful business executive whose, whose child had you know, a, a, a pediatric cancer experienced a drug shortage and then dedicated has dedicated her life to helping patients and organizations get drugs when they need them and working with laura we were able to help find drug i, I can tell you that helped at our institution at johns hopkins get drug faster um, she has so many connections um, and there's emergency supply available around the world to be able to get patients either to centers that had the drug or get drug to treat specific patients at centers so there's a lot of creativity. It didn't work every time, but a lot of creativity involved with that. Um, but yes, these alternative drug guidelines are based based on great clinical trials data. And um, although not always the same treatment schedule or dosing schedule, or maybe had a different side effect profile, in many cases, we were able to find alternatives for patients um, uh, that were effective. So wonderful. Thank you. So, um, so in, in, in terms of your message of awareness to younger women, right, who frequently get diagnosed with low-grade serious ovarian cancer, um, yeah. 
because we have heard multiple times from our overcomers who are young that they go to their physicians reporting symptoms, but they're always told that, oh, it's nothing, it's something else. It cannot be cancer. You're too young to have cancer yet. Majority of the younger population get low-grade serious. So it's there's a little bit of conflict in there, right? So how should younger women advocate and overcome the challenges that generally face um, in receiving timely treatment? Uh, due to these oversights that typically happen with younger women in terms of diagnosis. Yeah, this is a travesty when this happens. And, you know, there's a lot of research going on right now about the patient voice and um, both in terms of patient reported outcomes and clinical trials, but also in um, in educating about awareness, not just to patients, but there's a, just an equal initiative afoot to, to train primary care providers, gynecologists, um, you know, internal medicine specialists, and those whom patients trust, you know, to help them before they get to see a subspecialist. And so, um, I think that I think that organizations. Um, like yours are really phenomenal in this regard. And we need to potentially harness the collective power of ovarian cancer organizations, you know, with the SGO, IGCS and others, you know, to to create a, you know, a, a much better movement about awareness to providers and not just to patients. Of course, I think it's 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 most important for women and patients to know these symptoms because they're going to need to know why should I go to my doctor? Was this is this okay? Is this normal? Um, but we're not doing enough, I think, to send this message to providers. And I too, it's it's one of the things that upsets me the most as a subspecialist when I see a patient who was blown off by a provider or and and it's not intentional. Providers are well intentioned, but just may not have the tools to understand. And so the SGO, especially the Foundation for Women's Cancer, overcome other, you know, OCRA, we've got to work together and maybe, you know, have more effect in that regard. Wonderful. Thank you. So while we are on this, um, in general, as healthcare professionals, especially the ones like you who are so passionate about the cause and helping out our overcomer community, what do you see as system flaws when it comes to management of ovarian cancer? And what can we do better for our overcomers, you think? Well, to me, the number one thing we can do to improve survival in ovarian cancer right now is getting the right patient to the right provider at the right time. And you just spoke about this very eloquently, you know, with your last question, like, how do we, how do we create an environment with more timely referrals? Um, there's several studies that have been done by Rob Bristow and others in the ovarian cancer field about how, like, you know, up to 40, 45% of women with ovarian cancer are not treated by a GYN oncologist or treated by a GYN medical oncologist with a specialty in the field. And so just simply by, you know, this implementation science is what I'm saying. So how do we get providers to do the right thing, follow the literature, get the right patient to the right person at the right time? I think that is the biggest system flaw in my opinion. I think that underrepresented patients and patients in rural areas suffer this more greatly than others 
because of the multiple access issues to care that is involved there. And I do a lot of research on geographic disparities in cancer care. Um, I'm very interested in, in rurality and um, tribal medicine and, you know, other, you know, what are the environments that patients live in and how can we get care to them? What are innovative ways we can bring them to the mothership, to the specialty hospitals, but then, you know, be able to provide uh, other aspects of cancer care locally or through telehealth. We really have to be really much more creative about this and invest a lot of resources in this kind of technology so that we can um, provide equal access to cancer care. And that is so important because, you know, through our overcare program that we have, um, um, we, we talk to several women who are in the community setting in the hospital, majority of women that are being treated in community hospitals. And they say exactly what you're saying, that access to not just care, access to information, there is disparity in that. So one, if you don't know, you cannot act. So that it's as simple as that. So there is step is to to remove the disparities in information and then comes the access and dis removing the disparities to care so to your point there we do have to work together and go a long way before all of this is accomplished so thank you for bringing that that up and your candidness so uh would you just you know just uh learning a little more about who dr fader is so <laughs> What do you love most about your job and what has been the biggest learning lesson in caring for our overcomers with rare ovarian cancers for you? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. Um, it has certainly given me so much humility to care for these beautiful patients. Um, and the our, I think that we as providers as oncologists, as rare tumor specialists, we live to help our patients live longer, better lives. That's what we live for. And that's why I went into this field. And these patients uh, that I'm so privileged to care for become like family. We celebrate successes together. We cry together, you know, and we specialize in hope. That's what I love most about our field. And, um, you know, there's no better time than now, I think, to be in the field of oncology it's exciting, it's rewarding, it's continuing to evolve, and there's more treatment advances than ever and more um, advance, advancements in the scientific um, methods and tools we're using to study cancers to be more precision-based and personalized in our treatment. But we're also not only making advances in cancer treatment, we're making advances in the, in the humanity of how we treat patients and understanding the impact on on them and you know and including patients in clinical trials development because of that their voice is so important as we design the next generation of trials so it's just a a huge privilege um I, i'm very honored and excited to be in the field you know we have some some lows that are very low of course but we we push onward and we you know whether it's a drug shortage or you know uh, a drug trial that doesn't pan out you know we've got we just keep moving forward and hopefully we keep uh, keep improving outcomes for our patients wonderful and very inspiring so i've asked you a lot of questions dr fader what have i missed asking you or missed mentioning that you would like to talk to us about well i i think that um i would love to i would love to understand the perspectives of 
overcomers on their perceptions of how things are going in the field? Um, do they feel involved enough in the conversation, uh, whether it's edu education on awareness or clinical trials? And how can we do a better job at the society level and the individual institutional level to, you know, to get them involved and offer um, them opportunities? Because I think it's many of my patients have found they have told me they found it therapeutic and, you know, motivating for them to be involved and to help other women. And that's what's so inspiring to me about so many of my patients that they are going through the worst treatments or the worst struggles of their lives or fighting for their lives. Yet all they're thinking about is how they can help others and improve the lives of others. And so that that continues to really move and inspire me. Thank you. And then it just in closing, and I ask this to all our episode guests, uh, what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think you and I both lost our mothers to cancer and, you know, have gone into the, this field because of that. And um, I, I lost my mother at 19 to multiple myeloma. It wasn't a gynecologic cancer, but it really was the formative event in my life that inspired me to study cancer. And I loved the, the beautiful intersection of women's health, oncology, and surgery that this particular field brought about. And so I would just say that um, we are, as oncologists, more dedicated than ever to to continue to improve the lives of our patients. Um, don't give up, keep pushing forward and help, and we appreciate all your help and, and insights to help, help us improve treatments um, and hopefully eradicate more of these cancers. And I'm hoping in my lifetime that we, you know, will be out of business <laughs> uh, as we, we find new ways such as, you know, fallopian tube removal and others to help prevent vaccines for cervical cancer that we'll be able to, to see fewer and fewer cases. So that is what I hope for. And, you know, I love what you just said, because I said the same thing uh, to uh, a recent interview that I gave, someone asked me, so what is your, you know, 10 year vision with Overcome or something of that nature? I said, to go out of business. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Yeah. We are working towards and hoping for for all our overcomers you know worldwide that we see a day in our lifetime when ovarian cancer does not exist anymore so cheers to so thank you uh, dr fader this was this was amazing and we learned so much from you uh, absolutely fascinating conversation thank you for your candid feedback and your insights that you shared with us today and overcomers i know this was a fantastic episode i know that you will agree with me that we learned so much from dr fader today and we we are very grateful and thankful to her for her time and her invaluable insights that she shared with us. So as I always say, please share this video and these insights far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all the pearls of wisdom Dr. Peter shared with us today. And we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep well and keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support.